This is Philosophy Casting Call. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Philosophy Casting Call, a podcast that features underrepresented philosophers. My name is Elena Gutimamril and I'm your host and resident casting director. Since the end of Season 1, many things have changed, we've evolved in this pandemic, I caught COVID, I'm currently recovering... I also graduated, so I officially have a PhD. You may call me doctor if you so wish. And I had interviews with wonderful, wonderful people. I'm very excited to present this second season of Philosophy Casting Call. And I want to take you around the world. I made a conscious decision to gather a cast from different parts of the globe, and it provided with some interesting themes, including, but not limited to, kind of agreements with universities to return to the home country to teach after going to the global north to study. And as usual, it becomes very clear that people decide to take certain research routes because of material things, like whatever funding was available at that time or what programs were being promoted. So there are some common things that are coming back from season one in that sense because they remain true into how academia shapes who we are as scholars. In this first episode, I present to you my interview with Sarah Hongladarom, a professor of philosophy in Thailand, and we discuss everything from how he first discovered philosophy, his circuitous route, and how he ended up focusing on the ethics of AI from a Buddhist perspective. You will notice that there is some sneaky Spinoza discussion (laughs) snuck in. I could not help myself. This is, after all, my podcast. So I'll discuss Spinoza if I want to. But you might see that Spinoza pops back up at some point during the season. I did not plan for this to happen. But what can I say? He's just a popular guy. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Sarah Hongladarum. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners? Yes, uh, I'm teaching philosophy at the Department of Philosophy at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok, Thailand. And I'm also the director of the Center for Science, Technology and Society at the university. The center is a place where people, scholars who are interested in the intersections of science, technology and society to to meet and work together. Yes, uh, when I found out about your research at first, I found out about the work you do about ethics and AI and robotics. But before we can get into that, I wanted to ask... How did you discover philosophy as something that you wanted to study and do? Oh, yes. Uh, You know, I'm I'm approaching the uh, end of my career uh, uh, because in Thailand, in Thai universities, we have a mandatory retirement age at 60. 
and I'm 59. So I'm, I'm thinking about what to do next uh, in the case that uh, I cannot find any, any job after my retirement. But for the, uh, the past, uh, the question you asked about, uh, it's a, an interesting story. Uh, I did not start out uh, studying philosophy at first. My major subject at the university uh, was English language and literature. And I did not have an idea of becoming a professor in philosophy when I was in college. In fact, I did not think much about, you know, uh, what, what kind of occupation I would have uh, when I was in college. I was interested in uh, English literature, American literature quite a lot. So that's what I was interested in. And after I finished my bachelor's degree program, I went on to study in the U.S., in the English department for about a year, two semesters. And then my father called me and asked me if I uh, was interested in changing my subject because uh, there was a scholarship available in philosophy. And he would like to know if I was interested in, in you know, switching, just like that, <laughs> switching from English to philosophy in order to get the scholarship. Because at that time, my parents were supporting me um, with my studies in the U.S. I said, okay, because I did not want to be uh, you know, a burden to my parents. So I applied for the scholarship. It was a program for students to study a subject that the university uh, feels that they, they lack uh, personnel in that area. So there was a contract that after I finished, I had to come back and work at, at the same university, uh, this university, you know, for a number of years in return. So I did, and, and I uh, notified uh, my university, Indiana University in the U.S., that I would like to switch to change the major subject. I was uh, in the master's program at that time. And they said, okay. And in, the, in Thailand, it was very difficult to do that. Uh, I don't know about the UK, but in the US, uh, it's, it's quite a normal process because uh, there are credit hours and you have to uh, accumulate uh, the required number of credit hours and so on. However, I did have quite a, a bit of connection with philosophy uh, together with English, of course. I, I uh, minored in philosophy and I remember the time uh, when I was in high school. I went to the uh, school library and I found a book in Thai language on philosophy. And I remember that I liked the book very much. And, and uh, uh, the book kind of uh, sparked my interest in the subject. Uh, only that I, I was interested in English more at that time. So, so it, it's quite a you know, convoluted uh, kind of uh, path uh, leading no, me up to this that's point. That's very interesting because you see a combination of interests and then circumstance, you know, if this scholarship had not come up, maybe yes, you would right. not have gone there. Right. And then it's interesting for me to hear that 
it was like a study to work scenario when now mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. kind of the opposite there there are no jobs after you finish studying and uh, they're, they're like you have yes, to work for yes. us so that's that's very very interesting and can i ask when you read that book in the thai language what was it that i don't know if you remember the book but maybe oh, quite what well. aspect of philosophy because philosophy as you know is a wide subject yes yes of course it is it's a book about the whole of history of philosophy and the author was a thai scholar who uh, was the first person who uh, went to the west and studied philosophy officially formally uh, he did not get a degree in philosophy uh, he he his main area of subject was geology he he was a scientist but he was very interested in philosophy and he wrote this big philosophy book and he talked about everything from uh, the pre-socratics to uh, the moderns in the west you know and uh, he connected what he wrote about with his perspective coming from thailand and you know having been embedded in thai culture so uh, he he put his own kind of uh, individual and critical perspective into what he wrote in the book but but basically the book was intended as an introduction to western philosophy kind of bertrand russell's big book on history of philosophy you mm-hmm. know you you can imagine that kind of uh, work right now i'm also doing uh, another um, research work on the reception of the history of of western philosophy in thailand and and this book and this author his name was samak uh, featured very prominently in the story that my colleague and i are doing right now Oh, that's wonderful. Well, of course, if you let me know, uh, I can link it so people can check it yes, out when yes, it comes certainly. out. Yeah. Again, I find this really interesting that your introduction, although you were studying in the U.S., was through a Thai perspective on Western mm-hmm. philosophy, mm-hmm. and then now you are you wrote recently about a Buddhist perspective mm-hmm. on ethics and AI and robotics. It has that always been. A focus for you, or have you come to that later in your career? It came uh, quite later in my career because uh, when I was at Indiana University, they they were a the kind of department, uh, the kind of philosophy department that did not have any interest in Eastern thought at all. I mean, uh, they they thought that uh, Eastern philosophy. Belong to another department, mm-hmm. and at that time, uh, Chinese philosophy or Indian philosophy were kind of uh, the provinces of uh, departments of comparative literature or Eastern studies or religious studies. Uh, they were only interested in uh, Western philosophy and only in analytic philosophy. Yes, uh, you know, as as in most uh, philosophy philosophy departments. I think in the U.S. Uh, in the English language, in general. In the yes. English language world, yeah. yes, yes. So that was what I studied, and I ended up uh, writing my PhD dissertation on Immanuel Kant's. My condolences. Uh, critique of pure reason. <laughs> <laughs> the role of the imagination in oh, the wow. critique of pure reason. 
it's not you know a big mystery the the uh, whole project is uh, how to connect uh, what you perceive through the senses with the conceptual understanding and and he relied on this concept uh, which he called the imagination so so that was my topic for the phd dissertation and it, and then when i came back to bangkok the first thing i noticed was that the library you know was was more limited and it was not it it was possible but it took much more troubles uh, to get uh, recent publications uh, the kind of thing that you would need in order to keep up with the the, the scholarship in order to contribute to mm-hmm. to the current research on Kant's uh, epistemology i also found myself you know serendipity again uh, i i uh, found myself talking with people from other fields uh, like uh, medical doctors you know professors of medicine and others and especially the ones in medicine the medical professors they were interested in what i'm doing because they were looking for people who uh, had been trained in ethics and that kind of thing so we ended up working together and i found myself gradually uh, working more and more in applied fields in philosophy and then there was a, a call for paper back in 1998 written by my colleague Charles S yeah he's now uh, retired and he 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 used to work in at the University of Oslo for for a number of years on computer mediated communication and culture and at that time during the late 1990s the internet was just coming up and uh, scholars were interested in in uh, the roles that the internet was playing or, or what kind of influence the internet could cause so i started thinking about uh, what what the internet and how uh, people communicated via the internet in thai language or in english language but among thai people i thought about how thai culture was shaped by this kind of communication it it was not a, strictly speaking it was not a philosophical question it was more a sociological question uh but i and and charles s uh is a philosopher just like me so i you know uh charlie and i ended up uh, collaborating uh with each other for more than two decades so i i thought about this problem and i think my contribution from philosophy was to look at this problem from the perspective of uh, value theory uh, from ethics from the basic questions of universalism versus particularism uh, the question was whether there was a a so universal standard of value that everybody in the world should subscribe to or or whether you know each culture uh, had its own particular system of values which were not very compatible so i i wrote about this and it became my research area for quite some time and until right now <laughs> 
and the work that I have been doing recently in the ethics of AI kind of emerged from, from this general trend on the ethics of the internet and culture. So you've been following it since the inception, basically, since the beginning of the internet as a cultural phenomenon. Actually, it's how people communicate mm-hmm. on the internet, whether it's different or similar to when people really communicate in the real world. That was the question that uh, in the late 90s people were interested in. And and there was thinking at that time, I think it's based on some ideas of some political scientists. I don't remember. I, I don't know whether it's Samuel Huntington who, who had an idea of the clash of civilizations and mm. the clash of cultures. And uh, the idea was that there, there was uh, no really universal values or, or such values as universal could be achieved only through like, you know, uh, non-normative means uh, because, you know, political scientists, they, they look at the, the role of power and politics, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So there was the problem of globalization. And the question was whether the internet was the agent of globalization. And there was a belief, I mean, mean, many people really believed at that time that the internet could actually bring about democracy because, you know, uh, democracy is this kind of a value system. So there was this belief that the internet could bring about uh, democratic values and democratic systems and and it could change how a country is governed a country which has not been democratic before it is mm-hmm. a very you know flowery optim- optimism yes. and <laughs> 20 years on uh, experience have have shown us has shown us that uh, it is much more complicated than that yeah i think it's partly the reliance on like, well, if people have access to information, then everything right. else will change. And it's right. not it's not so straightforward. But no. it seems like it, it's still a very rich area for epistemology and ethics. So even yes. though the original call for papers wasn't philosophical, it, you can see how you can treat this question and idea philosophically. Yes, yes. It was more like an interdisciplinary yes. kind of I love conference. That. And is this how you got interested in Spinoza, looking at the challenges of normativity and ethics? Yes, uh, it dated back uh, to my graduate school years. I took a course in early modern philosophy, and it was a year-long course consisting of one in each semester, uh, uh, both the fall and winter semesters, and we studied intensively three philosophers, Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz. Somehow the works of Spinoza uh, rang a bell to me because unlike either Descartes and Leibniz, Spinoza had an idea which to me at least uh, resonated with Eastern philosophy. For example, he, he has a vision of everything being you know, completely one, uh, which in, in some Hindu philosophies, they, they also talk about everything being one. There's only one substance. There's nothing outside of substance. And this substance consists of uh, both 
uh, consists of an infinite number of attributes is a kind of you know almost literary kind of vision. Well, well, it's an interesting story. Since you asked, I thought at first of writing my PhD dissertation on Spinoza, but after that course, I took another course on Kant, and at that time, I started to think that Kant was more. I don't know whether we can talk about things being more true in English, but maybe more accurate or closer to the truth or mm-hmm. whatever. But I believed at that time. I, I don't do so now, but at that time, you know, my younger self. You are forgiven. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> believed that Kant was closer to the truth because his argument was more cogent, whatever, mm-hmm. more more rigorous, uh, whatever. But anyway, it was always history of philosophy. Yes. It was not a popular subject among my fellow students because they were interested in like contemporary problems in philosophy of language mm-hmm. or epistemology, but I found that to be a bit dry. Yeah, I I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one reason why I was really drawn to your book because when you think of AI and robotics and philosophy, it's a big topic right now, mm-hmm. and. There are a lot of analytic philosophers doing mm-hmm. that, and I found it really interesting that you brought in a different perspective. In this case, mm-hmm. a Buddhist perspective, and you spend part of the beginning of the book helpfully uh, explaining certain key things in yeah, yeah. Buddhist philosophy and theology. Yeah, I would like to ask you a bit about what you call machine enlightenment mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. book. Yes, yes. It's a key concept uh, in the book. Uh, the idea is that the term is intended to be metaphorical. I mean, when we talk about machines as they are right now, they are not conscious yet. Though some computer scientists and futurists believe that uh, machines, AIs, like Nick Bostrom, for example, they believe that the machines could become conscious in the next few years or. At most few decades from now, I talked about that in the book, but I try to make it clear that this book is not a speculation into the future. The ethics of AI in the book is meant primarily for the AI as of now, the blind algorithm that provides an engine for our social media apps and and, and much of other things else. So the term enlightenment. Represents the goal of action in Buddhist thought. When a Buddhist practices the the teaching of the Buddha, the reason why a Buddhist practices the teaching is that they uh, aim at arriving at this final goal, and this final goal is represented by the total cessation or. Complete elimination of suffering, and suffering is a bit of a technical term in Buddhism. It it includes physical suffering and pain. Uh, it's a big part of that, but it's more than that. It includes also your your feeling that things should be other than they are right now. That somehow there is a further meaning. In your life, that is not fulfilled. You know, this kind of feeling is part of suffering in in the Buddhist sense also. And the goal of the Buddha's teaching 
was to lay out a map for his followers to follow in order that in the end they could achieve the final goal uh, according to to uh, the map. So the final goal is is you know its other name, of course, is enlightenment. And I thought about uh, applying this this schematic idea, you know, uh, of of the Buddhist practice into an ethics of AI. So when we think about what should constitute an ethics for an AI system, what is a good thing for an AI system to be doing? I think in order to answer this question, uh, my argument is that we should look at this map, you know, uh, starting from right now, aiding uh, with enlightenment through practice. Uh, and and we should, I think, we should follow this map or this guideline in order to find an answer to the question of what constitutes the content of an AI ethics. So this idea led to the idea, the the concept or the metaphor of machine enlightenment, because when you try to think of what is good for a machine or an AI. To be doing the answer is provided by the idea that what is good is what contributes to your progress toward the goal. It's an ancient idea, and this idea is also available in the West with the with the ancient Greeks. So I I have found a number of similarities, and and there are differences, but there are similarities between. The Buddhist idea on ethics and the ancient Greeks, especially post-Aristotelian mm-hmm. ethics, Epicurus, and especially the Stoics. Yes, I can hear a lot of similarities with Spinoza actually as well of the Kanatus yeah, yeah, striving yeah, and all yeah, of right, that. Right. But I suppose my question is. In this book, do you perceive machines, AI, robots as an extension of human agency as opposed to an entity aside, for example, like non-human animals? Because the way, from what I read, the way you argue is that, well, we need to program these machines so that they perform to the best of their abilities for human good. So are you treating them as an extension of humanness? In a way, yes, uh, especially considering the level of advancement of these machines as of now at this moment, because in the future, uh, when machines become really conscious, and I, I don't even know, and I'm sure nobody really knows whether mm-hmm. they will become conscious at all. But in the case they they are, then it does not hurt. To prepare for this possibility, because when the machines, uh, like Nick Bostrom says, uh, when the machine becomes super intelligent, they will be able to do things that we we won't be able to control them. So why not we? Why don't we put in or teach them when you know we can teach them at this moment? Why don't we teach them to be ethical and put in the idea that being ethical is completely inseparable from being excellent in in technical areas? Mm-hmm. Because in order for machines to be 
super intelligence, if at all possible. Uh, the idea I'm, I'm putting forward is that they they need to be ethical. Otherwise, that's not hold water to to talk about them being super intelligent or, or anything if they are evil. The underlying idea, of course, is the Socratic thought that uh, wisdom is knowledge or virtue is knowledge. Uh, Socratic and and the Stoic idea that you know uh, you you have to know things completely well in order to become completely ethical. And if there is a way of teaching or programming the AI algorithms at this moment, and when they become super intelligent, then they will understand that their super intelligence comes with responsibility, comes with the kind of things that we associate with being ethical and being moral. So that's the basic idea I'm, I'm thinking about. So uh, we have to look at machines or AI algorithms as they exist right now. They are still blind. I mean, they, 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 they don't know what they are doing. I have to ask this, and it might be a, a difficult question, but how do you see this intersecting with disability studies? Because you keep talking about excellence and performance and as we look to disabled futures how do you see this emphasis on morality and kind of functionality as being viable in a world where disabled people exist yes yes very good question thanks a lot for asking it's a very very uh, important question also let me start out first by looking at what the Buddhists would answer in in more general term in, in Buddhism. Is it possible for a disabled person to achieve enlightenment? Yes, of course. No obstacles at all, unless the disability is a cognitive one. In that case, it's, it's more of a challenge uh, because uh, there are texts in in, in, in the scripture, in the Buddhist scripture, saying that if you are cognitively impaired, uh, it doesn't mean that you cannot progress toward the goal. You, you can make some progress, but the cognitive impairment kind of hinders your level of understanding and, and the ability eventually to achieve the final goal. But, but that does not mean at all that uh, no progress can be made. And it depends also on the level of the cognitive impairment we're talking about, right? Uh, because uh, what I'm talking about right now is, is people who, who really need a lot of help and, and uh, who are so challenged that they kind of won't be able to help themselves. So in that extreme cases, that is a bit difficult but but my my talk here should not must not be uh, interpreted or be understood as you know oh oh uh, you know in that case buddhism teaches that uh, less intellectually gifted people i mean uh, people in who in schools are, and you know they get lower grades and uh, won't won't get achieve enlightenment not at all uh, that that is not the case at all because uh, we are not talking about uh, the, the extreme 
cognitive impairment in, in that case. We are talking about people whose interests may diverge from the main subjects at school and and uh, and and who otherwise might be very good at what what they are doing uh, with the things they are interested in. So they can achieve wonders, you know, once they set their minds into something that that they love. So in that case, in, in these people uh, would have no obstacles at all. And and so that's about you know uh, cognitive disability. But what about people with physical disability? In Buddhism, the practice does not require any physical exertion. I mean, if you can set your mind to meditate and to reflect and think about the meaning of the teaching, if you can understand what the world is really like, then you can make the same progress as with uh, other people. Also, the excellence that I'm talking about and that uh, the Buddhists are talking about is the kind of excellence that can eliminate eventually your suffering. And in in these cases, you know, being physically disabled is not an obstacle at all. That's that's a great question. I have to think about this more. But but this is what I'm thinking at the yeah, moment. Yeah, especially when you think about programming yes. robots and like are we going to program disabled robots to reflect the extension of disabled people or it's it's a more complex question about like what kind of future yes, we imagine yes. as we're wrapping up i wanted to ask what are you working on right now right now i'm writing a paper on the differences among uh, ai ethics guidelines in various countries it's not strictly philosophical i have found myself Uh, working on more interdisciplinary subjects. Uh, but the core idea is still philosophical because it's a, uh, it's a compar comparison and analysis of the maybe uh, political motivation for these uh, differences in AI ethic guidelines. That's one paper I'm, I'm working on. And I will present this paper at and online, you know, everything is online right now. But there's a group at Oxford who are uh, doing this kind of thing and uh, they organize uh, a, a seminar in philosophy of technology. And another project which I have been putting off for a long, long, long time is to look at Spinoza and Buddhism. And I talked about my mandatory retirement uh, at the beginning of our conversation. And perhaps when I am really retired, uh, I can set, you know, my time and, and uh, effort into working more intensively on this this topic. Could come out as a book, who knows? And I, I let you know. But but. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, I will definitely want to know. <laughs> yes, in in both in ethics and in epistemology and metaphysics. Well, everything is connected. Yes, of course. Yes. And so I always ask my guests, what are you reading right now in philosophy or not in philosophy that you would like to share because it's really interesting? Yes, I, I just finished reading a biography of, you know, John Maynard Keynes, you know, British economist, because he's interesting in, in the sense that he You know, because things in Thailand are changing very rapidly and we have had political demonstrations and upheavals for many years. And 
uh, among these changes uh, are you know uh, economic policies. So in my spare time, because I'm I'm being locked down and you know, my university is closed and I'm prevented to from entering my office. So I, I uh, just finished uh, reading that one. And another book is connected with my work on Buddhism and Spinoza on philosophy of the self, just coming out from the University of Hawaii. So I've been reading that one too. I have so many books in my Kindle, and then I, I, I read a bit of this and a bit of that, and I listened to audio books also. The one on Keynes was read to me, you know, in, in, uh, from Audible. Yeah, I, I do like nonfiction audiobooks yeah, a lot. Yeah, me too. Very yeah, good, yeah. Yeah. So where could people find you and your work on the internet? Yes, my Twitter handle is So Nam Sangbo. It's my Tibetan name given to me by a Tibetan monk. And you can follow me uh, on my Twitter. And I am very active on Facebook. Mostly I post in Thai language, you know, communicating with my Thai friends and colleagues, commenting on everything happening there. You can have a look. Just go to facebook.com slash Suraj, my first name, only my first name. And you can you can also Google my name and then you, you can find other, other social media that I have uh, accounts on also. But it's mostly on Twitter and Facebook. Great. Yeah, and hopefully we'll have some... Thai listeners who would like to engage with you in the yes, Thai language yes. as well. So thank you again so much, Sarah, for meeting with me and having this discussion. And I look forward to keeping up with your work and to see what you're going to do yes, after yes, your thanks. retirement. So I wish you a good day. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my chat with Sarah. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As usual, I will put a link to Sarah's book, The Ethics of AI and Robotics, a Buddhist viewpoint in the show notes, as well as his Twitter handle. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at philoccpod. If you would like to recommend a guest, or if you have any questions about the show, you can email me at philosophycastingcall.com pod at gmail.com and you can listen to my other podcast bookshelf remix as well as my new gilmore girl podcast women of questionable morals which you can find on instagram and twitter thank you and until next time Music.